Welcome back to another episode of Hustle Like You Broke. Matthew Walt here, along with the usual suspects, my good friend Christine Dallas down in Miami, Florida. How are you today, Dallas? So well. I'm just watching those mangoes. I cannot wait. You have no idea. It's the best part of the year right now. Very exciting stuff. Good to hear. And from Los Angeles, California, Mr. Kyle Hamilton. How are you, Top my friend? Evening. Top of the evening. Sitting here on this nice overcast Thursday, having a small bowl of <clears throat> crunch berries, of course, and a day of relaxation. Overcast in Los Angeles, always a little bit concerning. Mr. Chris Lee, are you still seeing, are you seeing the same thing from where you are? Yes, I have severe overcast this morning. It's caused me to actually have a breakfast cocktail. A breakfast cocktail. Well, it's always a good day when you have time for a breakfast cocktail. How is that helping with your teaching your daughter today? Well, I'm not really sure. (laughs) We'll see how the day pans out. Drinking on the job. There it is. Well, today we're actually fortunate to be introducing our first venue management uh, industry professional. I'm very happy for that because we talk about and the news, you know, organizations always talk about the layoffs among the promoters and Ticketmaster and the agencies between layoffs and furloughs and what have you. And then in our everyday lives outside of the concert industry, we all know the impact, you know, of restaurants and bars being closed. And of course, no one would know kind of the confluence of those two better than someone who works in venue management. And, you know, the venue management and the staff in the the clubs in particular is a huge, huge number of, of industry professionals that are not seen, heard from, or truly appreciated, um, you know, the security, the labor, the, the, the bouncers, the front of house, the back of house, um, the bartenders. And, and again, that's tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people that are, I would imagine, currently unemployed. But uh, rather than hearing it from me, um, today we've got a longtime associate of our own, Christine Dallas, joining us Uh, They worked together years ago with AC Entertainment, and Dallas is going to be running the point on this this interview as a result. So uh, please welcome Mr. Tom Bug to the table. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, we are glad to have you. We really appreciate you. And if you wouldn't mind first just telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, we'll take the conversation wherever you want to go. Okay, well, I'm the general manager of the Tennessee and Bijou Theaters in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, the is actually, we are, I work for AC Entertainment, which is now part of Live Nation. Uh, but we manage and book these two historic theaters in downtown Knoxville. Uh, the Tennessee is a movie palace that's, uh, I think 92 years old in about three or four months. And the Bijou is 111 years old. So uh, they're both historic theaters. Uh, Tennessee's about 1,600 seats. The Bijou's about 750. Um, so Knoxville, Tennessee is very lucky to have still these two historic theaters still standing. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm a longtime Knoxville boy. I was born and raised here and uh, uh, got in the business as a bartender for the most part. Uh, originally, you know, 40 years ago, which makes me feel really old, but I worked for Bandit Lights, uh, which is also based here in Knoxville for a little bit. Uh, and uh, I start thinking and listening to a couple of your podcasts and the, the hustle like you broke, you know, I think that's how I got in the business is uh, being, not being smart enough to say, no, that's too much. Just keep going. Yeah. So, uh, but it's, 
and then I was with communicating with Christine about this, and I was like, oh, you know, this actually has been a career. I'd never thought about it as a career before, but yeah, you're, you've been doing this, you know, 30 years. It's a career, so there you have it. I love that because you, I, you know, I've watched it happen, I guess. And coming from that same school um, and having worked side by side with you, I've seen it in the trenches. And I think this is a great time for, you know, with the problems that we're facing right now in the world, we can, those of us that have that ability to, you know, sidestep and keep digging deep um, are going to hopefully keep reinventing and continue. But I think that um, the theater element is such a critical part of our, you know, like Matt was saying earlier, this is the place of uh, where people come to shows and how do we deal with that? But you particularly, having started at the bottom, are very familiar with what people feel like and the concerns that your workers have and the concerns that you have when you try to staff things because you can't put everybody on full payroll and you do have to deal with the part-time workers who are the ushers and the ticket takers and the bartenders and such. Where do you see that going? I think it's um, it's going to continue. I mean, when we get to the, uh, to the other side, I think for the most part it will continue as it was. You know, uh, I can say that, you know, they're kind of separated. Like ushers, for the most part, are um, in – you know, elderly, retired, and they do it for the social aspect of it. It gives them structure. Uh, bartenders are, some of them have real, you know, full-time jobs and they're, you know, gigging. Some of them uh, are just absolute, that's what they do is they bartend, you know, three, four, five nights a week, or they either have other bartending jobs and the uh, but in our world, I think the theater bartenders make really good money and it's, you know, and they're off work at a decent hour. They're not having to, you know, work till three o'clock in the morning. They're off by 11 for the most part. So, uh, maybe who I feel the most for right now are the, the local hands, the stage hands. I mean, I ought see and not, which, uh, I work with both, uh, you know, I, I really feel for those guys probably the most at this point in time because they have nothing to fall back on. Is there anything in the community? Is anyone reaching out to them since Knoxville's a relatively small community and all the venues use both, like you mentioned, you know, union stage hands as well as non-union hands? The ones that have reached out to me, uh, I've sent to the um, – and I don't know if it's going to happen. I've not heard, but the Live Nation, and I can't remember the name of the program now. I know that you guys know what it is. You know, I've sent them, sent them that. But uh, at this point, uh, you know, and I, I don't talk to many of them that that often. Some have reached out to me, but mostly I just hear anecdotal stories, and some are doing okay. Uh, Actually, one of some of them helped uh, one of my assistant managers move a couple weeks ago, and they seem to be all doing fine. Uh, they're, you know, I was not hearing any or once again anecdotal any stories about you know destitution or anything like that. But I think uh, they're probably getting unemployment because I think the gig workers can. That's encouraging because we've heard other stories around the country where they're talking about, you know, stagehands sleeping in cars and such. So it's not, um, it's never happened, never a good moment to hear. Um, when you talk about, like you were mentioning, you know, because some of your workforce is older, what about the, you know, when we flip it over and talk about the audience that comes, obviously there are established historical venues. Um, some would believe, you know, because they're 1,500 seat venues are you getting a lot of diverse acts still are you you know i know you guys do broadway as well as you have an orchestra contract so the knoxville um symphony orchestra i believe plays in the venue 
having all those differences, what do you see um, moving along? Do you think you'll continue to have this diversity? I think so. As I mean, as the local arts organizations, I you know I have not once again I've not heard any kind of things like we're in dire straits. I mean, uh, I think they're all going after the PPP money, um, and so. But you know, once again, I think at this point we're kind of early in this, and we'll see how it goes. But I do, I I think that the art scene in Knoxville is fairly vibrant and that we, uh, I think it'll start coming back slowly. Uh, and I've, uh, a lot of our renters, actually, I've had a couple of texts today if people want to talk to me and uh, they're going to want to ask my opinion about when we're getting back. And everybody has an opinion, but nobody knows. This is so true. Absolutely. But I did think one of your interesting points was the things that the new of coronavirus things that brings to you, like having a, what were you mentioning? Having to write trespassing citations and working with the police. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, this is one of the, we've had, uh, you know, I've both got outdoor foyers at both theaters and that we've seemed to have a, uh, some homeless folks that are thing to sleep in there these days. Um, and a couple of them has used it as a, uh, as a toilet as well. And so the, I have to, for the, for the police to arrest these people, I have to do a trespass notice. So uh, to give them the, once they've warned them once to, to not do it again, then uh, they have to have a trespass notice to either cite them or arrest them. And I guess a couple of them have been, uh, you know, ob- obnoxious with the officers. So, yeah, that's what I spent this morning doing. So in order to have the police come and talk to uh, and arrest someone, you have to give them a written notice prior to that. Is that only a law in Knoxville? I don't know where it's a law in I mean, it's what basically, and I have a great relationship with the Knoxville Police Department, and a, a lot of the officers work for me. Um, they can tell them to move on, and they do. Uh, but I think the issue is that now there are a couple of them, a couple of these guys that they're telling to move on have gotten very mouthy with them. They're not allowed to arrest them unless they I, we put them on trespass notice. That makes sense. Not really. Mm, that's, <laughs> no, that, that's, that's completely asinine because I know if, I mean, like out here in California, if you're loitering and you call the police and they come and you don't leave, you're just arrested and they handle it later. It's not like you have to give them a warning, please leave or else you're going to get arrested. Like that's kind of backwards. And I'm just doing what the officers asked me to do. So, um, you know, I, I haven't looked into it. I'm just writing a letter, sending it to, to uh, the downtown lieutenant, and he'll, he'll take care of it from there. That's yeah. crazy. So tell us about the theaters um, over the years, because you've watched both these theaters go through massive renovations in recent history. Um, do you feel, I mean, because I've seen you do everything from splice film to make a film work to, um, is it now, like, can you now do digital movies there or um, as well as, how is the how are the facilities more electronic perhaps than they once were? Well, at the Tennessee is where we do, we do a few films at the Bijou, but not that many. The Tennessee is the old movie palace. We do have a digital uh, projector, DCP projector. So we, you know, instead of sending the cans, which I know that you've carried many of those cans up and down stairs before. Great uh, yeah, it's great exercise. Um, we, we still have the 35 millimeter projectors upstairs, uh, which are older than I am. So that's still cool, and occasionally we will do something on 35 millimeter, but we do have the DCPs, uh, and, you know, 
uh, our technical director, Christine, who I know you know well, Tim Burns, whose father was a projectionist for years and years at the Tennessee. Tim was adamant against going to, he says, the purists won't like it, but once you got the digital prints, it's so much better. <laughs> Sound is so much better. The picture is so much better. So he's he's totally changed his tune, which knowing Tim that he never changes. Yeah, I could definitely tune, second so. that opinion. <laughs> Tell me something. What about um, like at front of house position? Because I know that's kind of an sort of used to be in an awkward spot right there, kind of under the balcony with the uh, new improvements and such. Do you get a lot of positive feedback from touring um, teams, crews with both sound and lighting? How do they love coming to the Tennessee Theater as a historical building, or do they? Uh, find challenges working in an old proscenium theater? Um, mostly they've just said this, what a beautiful theater. It's amazing to me, the artists and the crew uh, over the years that are like, what a beautiful theater. You know, this is one of the prettiest theaters I've ever been in. This is the Tennessee the Bijou. They're like, wow, what? the acoustics in this place are amazing. Why are the acoustics good? so good? I don't know. I'm not a techie. I don't know that. I'm pretty sure it's because it was built in 1909, uh, pre-public address system. Is, they knew what they were doing back then. And none of that configuration um, was changed when they did the remodeling? No. no, no That's no. fantastic, because I've seen artists step away from the mics there once they've picked up. You know, a star, an artist who's never been in there before goes in, gets on the stage, and then, like you say, they're blown away by the acoustics of the Bijou, and it's not uncommon for them to go naked out there, isn't it? Yeah, and actually one of my fondest memories at the Bijou is Tony Bennett coming out in front of the microphone uh, for a sold-out show and just say, what marvelous acoustics this place does, and does a couple songs, you know, with no amplification whatsoever, and... It's still, you know, it's still the hair on the back of my neck raises up when I think about that that night. So that's awesome. There's so many nights I know. What's the most progressive act you've had out there of recent memory at the um, at the Tennessee, for example? Progressive act. That's you know the Tennessee. We don't do I would that much progressive music. Um, and I would think that you guys consider um, don't won't wouldn't consider uh, country as progressive, but you know the Sturgill Simpsons and the Jason Isbells of the world, uh, more of the Americana range, not not mainstream country, but you know it's been a watching them over the years actually go from the Bijou, the progressions from the Bijou to the Tennessee to now the arenas and stuff like that. That's one of those cool things to watch too. Although, uh, and I know you guys are, do a lot of uh, arena shows. I'm spoiled rotten. I've seen them in a 700 seat theater and, you know, Chris Stapleton's another one that, you know, you watch him play the 700 seat theater and then you're the, the next time he's in town, he's, you know, playing uh, you know, with 20,000 people. I say to myself, it'll never be as good as it was when I saw him in my theater. So, and I'm spoiled and, and jaded as well, probably. Well, Tom, let me jump in real quick. I just want to say, uh, I definitely think there's a lot of great and very progressive country music out there. And and I think that Sturgill, uh, Sturgill uh, Simpson, Simpson, did I say that right? Yeah. Jason Isbell. Chris Stapleton, I got confused between Simpson and Stapleton there for a second. My apologies. Obviously, I'm not that well-versed. But what I know of these guys, they are extremely progressive. They are, uh, you know, they're really doing, I, like, there's a lot of talk that, you know, modern country is is the new rock and roll. And and I definitely think there's a lot of truth in that. So So please don't discount, you know, what you're seeing as something that we or our audience wouldn't necessarily love. Uh, we definitely I, I want to hear more about that. I, I would love to hear more about, 
you know, whatever venue, you know, you're talking about, um, whichever one we're referring to, you know, how the music has evolved over time and, and what you're seeing in terms of the changes in the music that's being presented, um, whatever that genre may be. Yeah. And, and the Tennessee is a little bit different. Uh, we do a lot of heritage acts, um, Plus we do Broadway, plus the symphony, plus the opera. Um, and the Bijou kind of does, you know, it has two, two audiences, the up and comers, uh, and also the niche artists that, you know, that are going to do 500 to 700 people, you know, every time they come, every time they come to town, which is not every year, but every two or three years. Uh, so, um, you know, the, some of the ones that have played the Bijou in the last year or so, uh, Beach House, uh, the Marcus King Band, Billy Strings, uh, Black Violin, uh, Valerie June, you know, all I think are up and coming artists that are, you know, going to go somewhere. Um, and so to me, you know, I don't, and I, once again, I keep telling you I'm old because I am, but you know, a lot of these artists I've never heard of until they come in and it's like, wow, this is really cool. And then there's some of it that, you know, uh, I'm like, I, I don't, don't probably get it, but they're bringing people out. So I'm happy. Well, I guess bringing people out is uh, the name of the game, selling tickets, putting asses in seats. And obviously that's uh, an area that's somewhat deficient right now, to put it mildly. Um, but, you know, not dwelling on the now, I, I appreciate hearing about about some of your history and some of the things that have come before. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where we're headed from here. If you could tell us, not so much your thoughts on how we come out of this, when we come out of this, uh, or, or anything like that. I, I think it's too soon to speculate on that, and people try, but uh, uh, but but we just don't know. But but we have talked a lot about ways that we want to make this industry a better place, a safer place, and love to hear your thoughts. You know, at the club level, at uh, from a venue perspective, venue management perspective some things that, you know, maybe the agents and managers and, you know, high level, you know, promoter conversations at the Polestar conferences and uh, may, maybe things they haven't touched on before that we should be considering, you know, as we come out of this in, in this time where we have to refocus our attention on the needs of the, of the working class heroes as, as we call them. Well, I definitely think the, the cleanliness think the disinfecting the buildings after each shows before we got shut down, we had just started instituting that as well. Um, I think one of the things you, you're going to have to be proactive about telling your audience that you're safe, that this is a safe place to come. Um, you know, I think when we start back, I think, that your ushers and your security and everybody's probably going to be in masks. I, you know, I don't know this, but I think there's a decent chance when we do come out of it early on that the audience is going to be in masks and that's going to be mandatory. Um, you know, I think that probably, you know, taking temperatures before people come in the door is, you know, is going to be one of those things. And, uh, that I think what you want is your audience to feel safe. I mean, it happened several years ago with, you know, on the theater level when all of a sudden, you know, it was kind of wide open to know you're getting, you know, patted down, wanded, walk through metal detectors, you know, and there was, uh, most of the feedback you got was thank you. There was 
a little bit, and I would say in the two or three percent range is you're infringing upon my rights. But, you know, and now and I, almost every contract that I see now is that you, people will be want, going through mags or being wanted before they come in the door, and that's the contract. Um, so I think that's the, the key is that people are going to want to feel safe. You're going to want to make your audience feel safe, that this is not going to threaten us and, you know, and I, it was four or five years ago that we went to, you know, <coughs> wanding and mags in, in, in every venue um, to the, you know, clear bag policies, which we have not instituted yet, but every bag gets searched. Um, so that's, once again, I think it's just, it's, you want, you've got to make your audience feel safe. If they're not feel safe. I agree with you. Out. And I think but my biggest question too, when it comes to that is the cost factor, of course, because I think that's going to be the next devil in the detail. Who's going to absorb that additional cost? Cause of course, from the venue perspective, you're going to need more staff, you know, whether it's cleaning the bathrooms more often as well as all the other obvious things. Um, how do you feel about that? And how do you think we approach that part of the story? Does that get embedded in the ticket? Is that something you think the promoters are going to take on? Um, are we looking at contracts now? And are we looking at that part of the contract? Um, I think that on, on the other side, that it's going to be a shared cost. Everybody's going to have to bear that cost. I don't think that, and I think... I mean, this could be the optimist in me, uh, is that, you know, the artists are going to want to feel as safe as the audience wants to feel. You know, I mean, I, you t- I heard like your first, what, first or second podcast, you were talking about your the artists you work for are germaphobes and they don't, you're going to have to feel, yeah, you're going to have to, Everybody's going to have to feel safe, and it's everybody. The bartenders are going to have to feel safe. You know that that's the whole trick. Is you know it's it's a safety thing for everyone. It's not just the audience. It's not just it's the staff. So uh, and, I, and so I think it, you know yeah there'll be some uh, incremental costs, but I think it'll be shared, and I think everybody uh, will be uh, happy to to pitch in, especially after, you know, what we've been, what, last eight weeks? Has it been eight weeks, six weeks? Neither. Uh, <laughs> it's all one big blur. <laughs> yeah. So. Right, exactly. So, I think that's a valid point. I mean, uh, you know, as for, I'm concerned, like, you, you know, what, what are the dressing rooms? I mean, the dressing rooms are already filthy in most venues. I know not in yours, of course, but um, it's going to be an interesting part of the whole equation. And um, yeah, I think you're right. I think we're all going to have to share the cost of that and hopefully everybody will be, um, you know, positive about it. But it'll be definitely interesting to see how it translates. Let me jump in right quick. Why do you feel that if, when you think about it, venues are open to the public and you have thousands of hundreds of thousands of people coming through your facility um, yearly. So why is it that now all of a sudden, because a pandemic shows up that disinfecting is important. Shouldn't it have been important prior to? Um, I think the, in my venues are, are very clean, but I also think it's a perception. I think it's a public perception. Uh, and I, you know, the disinfecting, you know, spraying chemicals all over the place, you know, uh, not my idea for the mo. you know, until six weeks ago or seven weeks ago, it was like, uh, Oh, great. Another chemical that we're spraying around. And, you know, um, but you know, obviously the world's changed. Yeah. They're going to use the word disinfecting, but at the end of the day, they're just going to use, you know, commercial grade, disinfecting to spray everything down i i believe it's just going to be the standard stuff just actually being implemented now instead of oh it's fine just use a, you know a damp cloth where you're going to spray everything down 
You're, I mean, I think hand sanitizer stations, which we have already uh, implemented um, about, I don't know, 10 days before, you know, hand sanitizer stations at different spots around the venues. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, I mean, if you, you know, uh, there are, you know, the public out there, if you, you know, if you watch people that don't wash their hands after going to the restroom, I think that's changed, you know. And I hate to say that it didn't happen beforehand, but if you could watch it, you know. And actually, I'm not saying that I was one of the watching it, but, you know, I have employees. It's like, oh, my God, I just, you know, and then, you know, watching people just use the bathroom and just walk out of the bathroom without, you know, so... I think that's changed. I mean, I think a lot of it's changed. I think, you know, people are going to be washing their hands for 20 seconds. Well, I hate to think that it takes a pandemic to cause people to wash their hands, but uh, no, but that's a reality. I mean, unfortunately, you know, I live in the Northeast. I'm, I'm from the Boston area, Tom. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, I wasn't in the industry at the time. I was too young, but I clearly remember the station fire in Warwick, Rhode Island. And I know people that live in Rhode Island are ever mindful of that. Even people who aren't alive then are aware of it now because their restrictions on pyro are, you know, I, I don't even want to say the word is severe because I think that they're just, they're realistic. I mean, it took lighting a small club on fire that was overstuffed for people to wake up and say, well, maybe we do need to regulate capacity and maybe we should have fire certs um, on everything. And, 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 and I don't mean to oversimplify, but I, I, it to, that was kind of a light bulb moment for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, unfortunately we're in the midst of a global pandemic that now makes people think that cleanliness is something they need to take seriously. Um, I hope more comes out of it than that. Uh, shifting, Kyle, you know, likes to focus on washing his hands because this is obviously something that he's been aware of and mindful of for a long time. And I certainly appreciate that. To, to, to your point, Tom, you're people who walk right out of the men's room after not washing their hands, and that's disgusting. Um, but is there anything else that you can point to or suggest? Is there anything you're hearing you know, from Live Nation, as we understand, um, you know, having recently been acquired by Live Nation, I'm sure there's a lot of new regulations and, you know, things that you're dealing with that you weren't in years past. Are, are you hearing anything now about how projections are being made about other changes that are coming down the pipe? Uh, I haven't. I think we're too early there. Um, you know, I think there's going to be governmental regulations. I think that, you know, I mean, I've spent Monday afternoon, you know, looking at social distancing measures and looking at what my capacity would be if people were six feet apart. Um, so, uh, you know, and you're just looking, you know, what's the new normal? We don't know that. But I know that Knoxville and Knox County have – you know, they've got a uh, a new plan or, you know, the, the reopening plan, which starts tomorrow. There's no no more gatherings than 10, 10 people. There, you know, restaurants are reopening, but you have to have six feet in between patrons. Uh, I think they, you, I think you can have four people at a table, but then you have to have six feet between that. There's no, the bars, you know, you can't, sit at the bar and have a drink and, you know, and then phase two is, you know, no more than 50 people. Phase three is no more than hundred people in a, in a mass gathering. Uh, you know, where we're going to go with that, you know, I mean, it's, it's going to be governmental, you know, that this is what, this is what the new normal is. And so we're going to adapt to what that is. You know, we have, I mean, I, I like I keep going back to the, you know, the magnetometers and, the you know, no guns. I remember 
you know, to me, when we started um, um, patting people down before we got wands was, and it's once again, four or five years ago, and it's not the Pulse nightclub shooting. It was what happened the night before in Orlando where the little girl that won or was second in the voice or whatever was shot during a meet and greet, you know, um, so that's the one that's like, you know, and then when we started patting people down, I think the first show we had, we had five guns turned away. So people were bringing guns in, you know, now they're not. And uh, so, you know, once again, the new normal will be the new normal. And I think that it'll be a combination of governmental regulations and what how safe you can feel, make your uh, audience feel. They, they're in line and they see that bags are being checked and that they're going to be, you know, have to go through security. And you can, you can watch the people that aren't hip to that and they'll kind of step out of line for a minute. Then they'll walk, you know, walk away. Five minutes later, they come back and come back in. Well, you know, you, you know good and well that they took their gun back to their car. Well, that's encouraging. You know? That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and then there's people that have told us they'll never come back because they can't bring their, they have a permit. And, they, and I say, you know, this is private property and you can't bring it in. So. Wow. The things you have to consider. Yeah. You know, and it is, I mean, it's, you know, kind of, it's a Southern thing and, uh, you know, I'm sure Texas is the same way. It's like, you know, here's this is my right to carry a gun. I got that. It's your right to carry a gun. It's my right to not let you on my property so when you have a gun. So tell me something with all in your experience and having run, the, you know, some differing venues and been out in the field, like building shows from the ground up. Um, what do you feel that in those times and such and now, what can we do better? overall as we like in the venue side of it um i think it's gotten so much better this, and this is my opinion i uh i think i may have mentioned it was my bio that um back in the old days that when we'd go into a venue um especially municipal venues um it was almost like they didn't want you there you know, hey, you know, now we got a show tonight, now we got to work late. Uh, so, you know, and now uh, as I watched it over watched it over the years, it's like, oh, this is great. You know, it's it was almost like that, you know, even though they were an economic driver for, you know, everybody, uh, people were like, uh, Oh, yeah, this is great. You know, downtown Knoxville, Christine, you haven't been there in I don't know how many years, but, you know, 22, 23 years ago, after 5 o'clock, there was nobody downtown. There was two restaurants on Gay Street, which is the main drag on, you know, I bet there's 30 now. So, and a lot of that is driven by the uh, the theaters. It's like, oh, it's, you know, the Bijou in Tennessee have a show on the same night. You, it's hard to find a table downtown where you can eat. Um, so it's, uh, I think that, you know, and I don't know when it changed, but it definitely has changed over the years. Uh, uh, I think, but when I first started running the Tennessee in 1996, what I knew about venue management was not a lot. It was, but I know not to do this. I know don't have, don't have an adversarial relationship with the artist or the production manager or, you know, the tour manager. Uh, don't charge. I mean, I, this is one of my first, we're doing at a show and I'm not going to name the venue, but they're charging the promoter 10 bucks a table for the, uh, merch position 
So there's like a $50 bill on that. And it's like, and the venue's keeping the merch. I said, you're charging me 50 bucks to put these tables out here for a merch position. And I don't even get to keep any of the money. So, I mean, that, you know, uh, I remember, you know, another time we, you know, and it was actually Bob Dylan and our buddy Al Santos, uh, who's Dylan's longtime production manager, we're going to pull this, these seats out for the mix position. And, you know, you had to have a meeting of about 14 people. Finally, they said, okay, we'll do that. You know, well, yeah, it's extra work. Let's make it work. And, on, you know, and then, you know, a year later, they had removable seats there. Uh, so, you know, it's just the thing. It was like, if you make the artists happy, they're going to come back and, you know, and then your venue's going to, you know, and the, it's a small industry and it's like, Oh, that's a great venue. I want to play there. Um, so to me, I think a lot of it has changed for the better. Uh, and I'm probably got blinders on right now about things that we can do better. Um, but I've definitely watched it go over the years. So it's like to be an adversarial relationship when you, as a promoter, when you walk in the building, you're That's like, awesome. oh, we're so That's glad you're here. That's a positive. We like that. I want to play there now. If they're taking out seats, I want to play there now for front of house. I love it. As it should be, right, Kyle? <laughs> Well, and I think Tom makes a good point. It's, you know, this is part of the part, the part of our business that we have learned by mistakes along the way and getting better, you know, over the years. And sometimes it takes parts of the country longer than other parts because, you know, they, the bar is not as high perhaps, or the need is not there, but finding the ability to recognize that, Hey, you know, something like removable seats, what a concept. And now it's chop, chop, get it done. Good stuff. So, Tom, I think I have the most important question yet. I'm actually surprised that we haven't asked it already. This this is a big one, so so get ready. I trust you're going to have a great answer. What was Christine Dallas like to work with back in the day? Well, my first question to you guys is, how do you get away to calling her Dallas? <gasps> That's my first question. Because I shared an office with her for two and a half years, and she um, – commanded proper respect and she was the queen of the office. And so I don't understand the first thing I, everybody's calling her Dallas. And I was like, wow, how the hell do you get away huh, with that? Turning that one around on me. Um, I'll take a stab at that one and say, I have absolute utmost respect for Dallas, but it never even crossed my mind. I should ask her whether she was okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I referred to her. And I probably still won't. I'll just keep calling her Dallas. Dallas, I love you. I will say that I didn't ask her. She told me, by the way. And I will say that, yeah. That's they, the uh, thing Dallas I know. But yes, I will say exactly. that uh, and somebody I worked with for, you know, five or six years, shared an office with for two and a half years, I never had a rapport with anybody I've ever worked with before or since that, you know, we had each other's back. Uh, and it was a yin and a yang. And especially sharing the office, we kind of knew what each other was doing. And instead of asking what needed to be done, you could kind of just sense it and say, okay, I'm going to do that. And she had my back. I always think I had hers. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was enjoyable. And also you couldn't eat an orange in your office without peeling up some sections for her either. So Tom, have anything you want to add, like some wisdom to our listeners or some amazing story from back in the day you want to share with us? Not really. I just like the, I think I may have touched on it earlier, the hustle like you broke. I never really thought, you know, much about it, but you know, when I first started with Ashley Cap started AC Entertainment um, for the first four or five years. I had another job, you know. I was working in a liquor store. I was tending bar. Um, that was, and it actually probably started back in the bandit days. It's like, you know, I don't have a creative bone in my body. Uh, 
but watching this art come together and being a part of it uh, was just fascinating. Maybe it's because I don't have, you know, or any artistic talent or, you know, and so I was like, wow, this is really cool. And I'm part of this now without having to sing, dance, play in an instrument, whatever. So, uh, you know, but it just all, you know, all right, you got another job, you got to do this, you know, you worked and you worked a 20 hour day, uh, you know, get, getting a show in a field and loading out the stage after the, after loadout, but you still had a 10 o'clock shift the next morning. So you, you know, I don't care if you got in at six or not, you got to be at work at 10. So, uh, but, you know, and it allowed me, you know, it's like, you know, and then as I said it before, I never thought of it as really a career, but I'm 61 years old. Here you are. It's been a career. So, yeah, and I know how hard you guys work on the road, and I know how hard the road is. And uh, I was also telling Christine, I'm, I'm really amazed, you know, because the lack of structure the last six weeks is – uh, I've not done that well with it, in my opinion. Um, you know, I like the fact that you, in my job, I get up in the morning, you know, eat breakfast, take a shower, you know, have a cup of coffee or tea, you know, on the way out the door to work. And it's like, and I have deadlines and stuff. And now it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can do this and I can do this. And, I, you know, and you guys, I know, you know, a lot of work from work from home, a lot of advanced work before you go out on the road and you do well with that. And that, that, that commands a lot of respect for me. Well, thank you, Tom. Um, let's just have a couple more quick questions and then we'll wrap for today where we've actually passed a surprising amount of time already. And uh, we definitely appreciate yours. We appreciate you being with us. Um, we usually ask people about their first tour or their favorite tour, but as a venue guy, can you tell us, about your first or your favorite show? The first, well, first of all, I don't know that Ashley Caps had this club in Knoxville and I started bar bartending there and there was just all this music I didn't know existed. Uh, and like, wow, wow, you know, that's, uh, that's amazing. You know, I had no idea you know, from country and Western to, uh, to jazz, to uh, almost anything. And it's like, and I still, uh, I know you guys probably don't know who he is, but JJ Kale, uh, working that show. And I knew kind of coming in how quite an artist is, but for those of you that aren't familiar with JJ Kale, he wrote, uh, Leonard Skinner's, they call me the breeze. He wrote, uh, Eric Clapton's After Midnight. He wrote uh, Eric Clapton's Cocaine. And just being blown away. And that was one of those nights where it was two shows. So we, you know, we turned it around, you know, did like a 7 and a 9.30 show. And, you know, and I was just blown away. But one of the ones I do remember is being on the sitting at the monitor board the first time we did a Bob Dylan show and being able to sit there, which by the way, you could never do now. No way Dylan's crew would allow that to happen. But uh, sitting at that board going, wow, this is absolutely incredible. And uh, so I'm, I'm getting paid to sit here and watch this show on the side of the stage. It's like, wow, this is really cool. Well, we all aspire to moments like that. So kudos to you and kudos for such a long career. Again, we, we really appreciate you being here and sharing your perspective from a venue manager. And uh, before we go, do you have any shout outs, thank yous, anyone you'd like to actually uh, right now, just to? Christine, because I, you know, uh, I worked with her. It's been 20 years since I worked with Christine and um I do know that August 4th, if I don't make a phone call to her on her birthday, I'm dead meat. 
And, uh, you know, so, uh, and I don't care if she's in Italy, Asia, Australia, she better by God have a voicemail from me saying that, uh, happy birthday. So a lot of great times with her over the year with her folks as well, vacation with her folks and just the, just working with her, you know, I mean, you guys get to work with her. And, uh, so, you know what, and, uh, but yeah, it brings back a lot of great memories and a lot of, uh, you know, laughs, you know, over the years of kind of starting, you know, as a small promoter and making shows in fields and some of the things that we, you know, the mud, cars the, running off hills, the dirt, the dust. <laughs> the person- Sorry. Yeah. Oh, All right. we digress. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's over. Yeah. But it does it might it brings be back a lot now. of great memories, no. and it's true. You know, it's what we do. We go out there, and uh, yeah, it was like being on a team, and that's also that's the greatest feeling ever. With you know, when we're all on the road and we're a part of a team and doing what we do makes it all worthwhile, and why it keeps us, or for me, it keeps us going back out there. And I do, I do have. I'll shout out to my both my staff staffs at both theaters. I've got a great team, and I've worked with a lot of great people over the years, and. Uh, that's probably who my shout outs to be because they put up with me uh, and my quirks and idiosyncrasies. But, you know, I always think that uh, I'm, they I'm are lucky with to you. work with them. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to wrap up this love story in just a moment now before I uh, feel a little queasy. Uh, I definitely appreciate it. I have made a note in my calendar. August 4th is Christine Dallas's birthday. I will try not to forget Dallas. Forgive me if I do. I feel like we were on the road together for your birthday in the last couple of years, so I should know that already. Um, There it is. So also one more thing, uh, Tom, that you alluded to, and and I don't mean to end on a somber note, but we've heard from a lot of people, of course, about the difficulty they've had during what Kyle optimistically refers to as a coronacation that we are on these days. But uh, certainly mental health issues are a fact of life nowadays Nowadays, for a lot of us. Um, and on our website, hustleikeyoubroke.com, we do have actually resources for mental health facilities and uh, people in the industry who are calling attention to those issues right now. Uh, it is very important that we all prop each other up, take care of each other, and look out for each other, as clearly, Tom, you do with your staff and you and Dallas do with each other, which is uh, very nice to see. So appreciate you very much for being with us today. Uh, appreciate you being a hustler. We certainly will keep hustling. And uh, thank, thank you guys you for having me. It was fun. And good night. Thank you.